scripture comes to us from Mark 14, 26 to 52. The word of God speaks to us like this. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, <laughs> Sorry. even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a have you come out as a robber, as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the very word of God to us. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Puckett. I'm one of the pastors here. And I, I'm struck by something that we just witnessed. In both services, the person who read scripture started weeping. And felt it, felt the, the spot and felt the, the place in the text where we're just hearing something that is really intimate. It's really, 
it, it's really a glimpse into something that we just don't get very often. This deeply personal and painful moment that Jesus has with his disciples, but also with God the Father. And, and so let me just kind of take a step back from that and set that right here. And then give you what seems really disconnected right off the bat. What seems disconnected is I'm just going to let you in a little bit into my thought process. I hate running. I hate running. I have a very conflicted like relationship with it. Uh, I mean, look at this frame. It could generously be described as burly. And so like this frame, not really built for jogging, running, all of those types of things. I hate it. I get the health propaganda put out there about running and all the ways it would do that. But generally, I just think of running as uh, essentially a cry for help. And so if you see me running or you see some crazy running around town and doing all sorts of stuff, like, stop, help, please get me to somebody. You, you add into this, like, the way that, like, people talk about running, like, the runner's high scam. <laughs> but generally, we also talk about, like, things that we're running from, like, or, or, like as escape and all these different types of things. And so I just have a deeply conflicted relationship with running, and I need your help. I want you to see that if I'm running down the street here in Yukon. So I say all that because... What we see in this passage is that everybody runs, except for Jesus. When we get into this, like when we unpack this, everybody runs away except for Jesus. And, and I, I bring all that up, whether this is your first time with us or you've been with us a lot in this, because we're, we're on what we've been saying is this long walk with Jesus where we're not trying to race through every bit of it. We've been in Mark for a good while now. We'll wrap it up at Easter. But we've been walking through Mark to just kind of continue to say, forget about what the culture says about Jesus. Forget about all the other uh, things, that the, the websites or any of this says. What does the Bible say about Jesus? What is the claim about Jesus that is being made in Scripture? And what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? And so that's, where, that's why I just want to introduce it with that. We have this deeply intimate look at, at this moment in Jesus' life, but we also see that everybody runs away from him. Everybody runs, except for Jesus. While we've been on this kind of long walk with him, what we've seen over the last few months, but particularly in the last few weeks, is that these claims of Jesus stand up. His word is true. He is who he says he is. We have to deal with that. A lot of times we like to just bury our heads and act like oh, we're just going to do our own thing. Uh, but we have to deal with it. And here's why. Because the Bible makes an equally astounding claim. It actually says, it says, at one point, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is. So as we step into this, I, I, I just want to stop. I want to pray for you. And I desperately want you to pray for me. That we would just be people who look and see who Jesus is. And that we respond to that. That none of us, none of us 
need another just religious thing that we do. None of us need another thing where we sit up straight and try to impress anyone else or even try to impress God. We actually need to see and respond to who this Jesus is. So will you pray with me? Lord, give us eyes to see. Help us to see who you are as revealed in Scripture. Help us to see that and to respond to those things. Help us to be people who can lay down all the posturing and just respond to you and who you are. And so, God, meet us today. Meet us today and help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning as we dive into to Mark 14, or we, we get to look at this, we come to this amazing moment where in words and in actions, we see Jesus as this revealed king and savior that he said he is. This is really a moment where all the trappings fall off. And, and what we see from the beginning of scripture all the way at the beginning of our Bible to the end is, is really laid bare for us. And we want to respond to that. We want to see it. But as we get here, as we, as we kind of stop on this walk in a in a relatively normal garden. We stop at it. We, we need to recognize that it's bookended by two jarring accounts. And so we, we want to see it in context. We want to read scripture as it was intended and recognize the context matters. Words matter. Symbolism matters in these types of things. But we also want to come to it from a perspective that is appropriate. And what we've been talking on this walk is just saying, like, how easy it is for us to come to this, like, a yearbook, just looking for ourselves in every story. And, and I just want to say, like, this is a story about Jesus. So resist the urge to think, oh, I'm going to come across hard gardens in my life. I'm going to have hard seasons of, in my life. I, I'm going to experience suffering, and so would I respond like Jesus? And there's some, there's some truth here, but like don't overly moralize it. Recognize that this is a loud statement about a king who is Savior. We either believe that or we don't. So as we jump into it, let's, let's do our work right there on these two bookends first and then get into the garden together. We'll start here on this first side. On one side of this garden is Jesus' frightening, and I, I don't just want to throw out crazy words, a frightening conversation that he has with his disciples. And so for us to get that, let's back up to where we were last week and, and pick up the, the section in verse 22. Mark chapter 14, verse 22 says this. And as they were eating... He, Jesus, took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Okay, so he, he gives this covenantal meal. He takes this and he packs it with meaning. It already had meaning because it was the Passover meal. It, but he takes that Passover meal that Jeff talked about last week and he says, 
this is monumental. This is my body and my blood given for you. As often as you gather, take this and remember what has been done. But for them, it had not been done yet, right? And so he takes this meal, and then immediately they step out, and this is the next verse. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Because they're weak, because they're, they're lazy, because they don't really care. No, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus is making a big statement right here. Again, he is who he says he is, and his words have become true. We saw that all through chapter 13, this promise that was kept by God. And he says, every one of you is going to scatter because the shepherd is going to be struck. But after that, I'll be raised up. And then I'm going to return to Galilee. All of that is future. But what we get in this moment is Jesus is calling them out. They just had this covenant meal. And now Jesus is calling them out of like, this is about to happen and you're going to fall away. And you have the arguments of like, nah, no we're not. No we're not. I would never leave you. I would never do that. And yet that's exactly what's happening. You will fall away. You're going to run away. Imagine hearing those things. Imagine being at that meal and then stepping out and Jesus is like, you're moments away from running away. Up until this point, Jesus has been mostly encouraging. Pushing them. Walking with them alongside this. But at this point, this is Jesus that doesn't feel encouraging. This is Jesus that feels depressed even. And this is a Jesus that those guys, their head has to be spinning in it. It has to be scary because like everything that they think they're there to take over. And yet Jesus is saying, you're going to run away. He's talking a lot more about his death. He's talking about all these things. But it, it isn't just about them. Jesus isn't just giving a statement about them and what they are going to do. He's actually talking about himself, too. And he quotes from one of the prophets. He quotes from Zechariah. Zechariah, listen, we all have questions, right? Zechariah leads us with questions as we read these things. But Zechariah's got these three or four chapters right in here. And where he's speaking, this prophet is speaking of God's judgment upon Israel for worshiping Baal. He speaks of God coming in judgment, God stopping the sacrifices, God stopping pro prophetic words in this time. It, because, because they weren't listening and they weren't actually worshiping God. He actually says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Zechariah focuses on all of these things. He, he focuses and he gives all of this. But Jesus takes the prophecy of Zechariah in an area in which Zechariah had no knowledge of and he says, this is me. He's telling them that he's about to be struck by God. And 
this is, we're, we're stepping into an area that's really hard for us to get because you can go watch The Passion of the Christ or some Easter movie or Chosen or something, and you can go watch them, and for all of the, the benefits or ways that it might help see some re, recreation of these types of things, it's easy to, to demonstrate the cross and the torture of the cross. It is impossible to show what's happening in this garden. just nearly impossible to show and so thankfully we have the whole of scripture that illustrates this for us that paints this for us and gives this for us well that's one side of it so but but let's jump to the other side uh, of this bookend if so if that's on the front end what's on the back end of this garden we know on the back end is Jesus's betrayal and his arrest so there's a clear one that's going to fall away. There's, there's one. They don't know who it is at that dinner, and they're all kind of taking bets and wondering, is it him, is it me, is who, who is it? But here on the back end of this garden, we know who it is, and we get it. We know that it's Judas who found the spot, a dark and quiet place, a garden outside of Jerusalem for this to happen. We can read all sorts of those things and details about how much he got for it and what his heart did afterwards. You can read that in the other gospel accounts. But I want to draw your attention to something that feels out of place here. Like we've been walking a long time with Jesus, and yet they come to arrest him. And they come with what the Bible says twice. It says swords and clubs. It says they bring all this stuff. Like the SWAT team comes out to get Jesus. And you, you, if you're just thinking about it, you're like, at what point did Jesus show himself to be anything but a, a man who's there teaching with him? He even says to them, he's like, I've been with you teaching in the temple, and not one of you has come to me yet. But now you come with swords and clubs to get me. It makes no sense. It's like, it makes no sense why they show up full SWAT team into this type of thing, unless you remember the words of Zechariah. shepherd will be struck. The shepherd's going to be struck, and it's not them as much as it is God bringing judgment. So pick it up. Mark chapter 14, verse 47 says, but one of those, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I was with you in the temple, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Well, we know that that last line right there, they all left him and fled. We know that that's not the, the people coming to arrest him. They still arrest him. We know that. They beat him. We know those pieces. Who fled Those people following him. Those people coming after him. Those people right there doing this. And then we get this, this account that Mark puts in there. Mark puts in this last detail into the story that I just want to throw it out there. Verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him 
But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Okay, that's it. Full stop. The Bible just gives us this and just leaves it there for all of us to be like, wait, I have questions. <laughs> like, let's just try to be human in this for a second. I have questions. Uh, what's going on here? We get this super intimate story here of the arrest of Jesus, of everyone running away. We get this story right here that that shocks us that these people ran when things got tough and we shouldn't be shocked because there's promise the word of god tells us that these things are going to happen and so with that with those two bookends let's just kind of put ourselves and let's step into the garden right here and see what is being said and what we're supposed to take from it see so we're on this garden, we're in this garden of Gethsemane on this Mount of Olives. And olive trees are important in the Bible. Olive trees are important to these people at this time in really significant ways. You can still see olive trees everywhere if you go to Israel. But they were significant for agriculture. They were bought and sold. They were a piece of it. They were in, important for diet. They were an important part of religious practices. Even becoming... A, really significant imagery throughout the Bible. So just part of the, the, the time of living, but also throughout the Bible for us as we read this, you just see it again and again. So back to Jeremiah, this prophet who was talking about the striking of the shepherd, who Jesus just immediately quoted, just immediately before this. Jeremiah says this, in chapter 11, he says, the Lord once called you, Israel, a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. And he goes on to explain this over the next few chapters. And why? Because, because they'd started worshiping other things. And so it, Jesus just quoted Zechariah that the, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And, and yet then he steps into this, this garden of an olive grove in which Zechariah, part of that whole section of Zechariah, is talking, comparing. Israel, you are this beautiful tree, but you are going to be cut down because of your sin. Because of your sin. And yet, after God allowed this judgment to come on Israel, he didn't leave it there. And you keep going on to another prophet, Isaiah, another prophet to the people of Israel, comes later on. And we have all this imagery about this one who is coming, this king who is coming. And yet we see right here in Isaiah 11, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump. Well, where do you get a stump? You get a stump from a tree that's been cut down. There's a shoot from a stump that is coming. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
Now, I skipped that important word in there. It was that this is from the stump of Jesse. And I don't have time to unpack this, but you can just go to Matthew chapter 1 and see this genealogy. And you see why we get to this. And it isn't just Jesse that matters. It's that Jesse leads us to Jesus. And Jesus is this shoot that comes out, out of the stump that's being referenced right here. Jesus is that shoot. And in Old Testament times, in Old Testament times, ripe olives were pounded and were ground down. And you take the oil from them. But by the New Testament times, you had a mechanized system that could take a lot of olives and bring it all together into this basin, which is called a Gethsemane. So they would pack that with olives, and then you would put the press on top of it. And you would crush would run out and go back in, right? So that, that's the system that you have at work in this. You have this pressing that takes place. But the Bible, it uses that oil, right? Because we're not just talking about trees and stumps. We're talking about what you get from the pressing in this. And, and what happens is that oil becomes really important because all over the Bible you see olive oil as representing honor. And blessing and even life. So you get into Leviticus 14 and you get all these laws. And they, they, if, if you were a leper and you've been healed, you would go show yourself to the priest and they would put oil, olive oil on you representing a return to life. But you also see oil placed on people, olive oil placed as a a sign of authority. When a king is crowned, what did they put on their head? When someone is marked for, special, for a special service, there's an anointing with oil. There's an authority. There, there's, there's an anointing that comes with this, this oil. And probably the most common use that you'd see for olive oil throughout all of it it comes from this pressing, it is collected and, and then poured out is for the, the fuel for lamps and the small lamps that are in different houses. You can take that for the, but not just for houses, but if you think about the temple lamp, the eternal flame that is in the temple, the menorah lamp that is lit is in the shape of an olive tree, and the fuel that lights that flame is the olive oil. I mean, the symbolism is through and through what we get in this moment right here. And where we, where we find ourselves right now is Jesus spending his last few hours, his last few moments before arrest in an olive grove at a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me spell it out even more. The Garden of Pressing. We could even say it one step further. The Garden of Crushing. And Jesus in this moment is being crushed. So his disciples have been left at a spot. He, he told them to keep watch, stay with me, keep praying. I'm moving on to this moment. And we get it 
we see this. Mark, chapter, Mark 14, 35 says this. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. I don't think he stumbled over a rock. This isn't just a I'm praying as I go prayer. This is in Jesus collapsing with what's on his heart, the cry of his heart right here. And he's, he's letting that out. He falls on the ground and prayed. And what does he pray? That if it were possible, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. That what is before him there's any other way God if there's any other way bring it right now meet me in this prayer if there's any other way that this can happen meet me in this moment God what we can't get in the movies what you can't get in any type of illustration of this is it isn't just a, a separation from these guys it isn't just that he left these disciples back here and they failed him. It's a separation from God. It's a crushing from God that he is experiencing for the sheep. Such a shepherd is going to be crushed. So when we sing a few minutes ago, but drops of grief could never repay. Like our, our feelings toward this only skim the surface of what is being experienced here. And so, again, jump back in right here into these same verses. He fell on the ground and prayed that if, if it were possible, the iron might pass from him. And then he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for me, from you. Remove this cup. What is the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's judgment. It's the cup of the shepherd being struck by God for the sins of the world. Remove this cup. We're walking through Mark, but Luke gives us a little bit more color right it helps us to understand this moment in the garden. And Mark sticks really to the nuts and bolts, to the to the the just the facts portion of this, other than giving us that weird naked dude runs off at the end. But for the most part, he just gives us like, here's what's happening. Jesus fell on his face, he's praying, and can we stop this? Notice how Luke describes this moment. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He's in agony. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the earth. Why? Is it because he's like, ah, oh, he's really praying and that did something. Maybe I could do that. Like, no, it's he's being crushed. He's being crushed. Isn't there another way? Can't you redeem people in any other way? And Jesus, out of all people who have ever lived, out of everyone who's ever lived, Jesus is the only one who has the right to ask this question. Because every single one of us who's ever lived 
will run away. And every single one of us will fall short. In fact, the Bible makes that really clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except for Jesus. If it were possible for another way, I think there would have been another way. Except what we get right here is the, the great weight of a Gethsemane on the olives helps us to understand exactly what's happening in this moment. Exactly what Jesus was feeling. The great weight of the sin of the world being pressed down upon him. And the coming rejection by his father pressed out these drops of blood. And this symbolic moment this pressing is a picture of the crowning of a king this this anointing of the savior is this mark pressed upon him of authority given that he is who he says he is and so what are we supposed to do with this in my last couple minutes what do we do with this with this moment in the garden. I'll be real quick through one, and then I'll spend a couple, a little bit longer on the last two. The first thing is what I said at the beginning. Resist the urge to put yourself at the center of this story. Resist the urge to do that. It's like, this garden is not about you and me. This garden and what happens in this garden is really not about you and me, except that you and I need this man in this garden being crushed for our sins. Resist the urge to be like, one day I'm going to face the sufferings in my own garden. One day life's going to get hard, and I hope I sweat drops of blood. Like we, we miss the point if that's what we do. But recognize, recognize in this moment and from this story and from what we read here that you're going to be just as tempted as I am and everybody else to run from these truths. That everyone in this story runs. Everyone throughout history has run except for Jesus. Everybody runs away from him. And this weird story at the end of this guy running away naked actually reminds us of other people who were found naked in another garden at the very beginning of this book. When we go all the way back to the beginning garden, the garden of Eden, we see that they were there naked and everything was okay, except that they sinned. They sinned. And what did God do in that moment? He threw him out. He got mad at him. He, he lost his mind and lost his temper. No, no. That might have been your experience with your earthly father. But let me tell you what the heavenly father did in that garden, in that place. He provided a sacrifice for them. And we have the very first death in the Bible in which God sacrificed, God himself sacrificed an animal and put coverings on them. Something had to die of their sin and it always and forever pointed back to this Jesus and so recognize that 
there, that there are all sorts of reasons that we run. Sometimes we run because we think it's easier just to run and not face all those things. Sometimes we run because we think the grass is greener over there, or I don't want to face this. Sometimes we just run because of conflict or fear. And sometimes we run because we, we feel like we've gotten a no. And I don't want a no. Let me just press this in. Sorry, I didn't mean that as a pun. Let me just leave this here for us, for me, for my own heart. Because you will get no's from God in your life. This story is Jesus getting a no. At the most painful and intense moment any of us would ever face. He's pouring out his heart in prayer to God. And God says He is still loving and faithful and true. And I just sense and fear that there are people here who have gotten no's to some really important and maybe painful questions in your prayer life. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't given up on you. He's not aloof and standing off from you. What we see here in the garden is that God is intimately involved and cares deeply about every bit of this. This Jesus knows. We can wrestle with, isn't there another way? And there isn't, because this only Jesus stays put. Not your way, or not my way, God, but yours. And so the final thing that I would say is to receive this Savior King. This triple scene, this this bookends on one side and the garden in the middle, it just reminds us, it causes us to pause and ask where we belong in all of this. Where are we in this? We're either running or we're receiving. Receiving this king. You're not being asked. Nowhere in the Bible does it ask you to clean yourself up. Adam and Eve were not asked to clean themselves up. God made a way for them. There's not anyone in the Bible who's asked to clean themselves up. It is always God who makes a way. And it is through Jesus, this suffering one. You're not being able, you're not being asked to clean yourself up. You're not able to clean yourself up. But you and I are being called to receive this Savior King. And to drink from this cup that he offers. Not the cup that he took, but the cup that he offers. Friends, if we try to come to God in any other way, any other way than Jesus, we will experience that cup of wrath. Invitation from God is to receive his blessing and his name, his body and his blood, which makes way for us. Will you bow your heads with me?